Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He he said, Carol, I'm really confused about who I am and how I am showing up in the world. You know, I like wearing women's clothing. It seems very compulsive. I don't know. I have to do it in secret. There's a real taboo factor. Please help me to understand, do I have a sexual addiction? Well, I reached out. We'll call him Tom. I reached out to Tom, but he did not return my email because I needed more information from him. Cross-dressing is not a sexual addiction. You know, if your behavior is compulsive and it's causing lots of problems and you feel badly about yourself and you're hiding it, you got four out of the ten criteria for sexual addiction. But in essence, that's how so many people deal with what we call fetishes. And in most cases, Cross-dressing is a fetish. It is not a sexual addiction. And if the person could do the behavior openly and honestly and with authenticity, they wouldn't be hiding it at all. So good question, Tom, and I encourage you to contact me so I can ask you some more information so I can really answer um, with with better feedback than just kind of guessing based on a lot of the men that I work with um, that are cross-dressers and don't exhibit sexual addiction. Well, I'm just checking in with all of you. How are you doing? 
You know, we really work hard at trying to diversify the topics that we talk about. And it always feels real good to me when I'm learning something new, again, about specific types of issues, problems, disorders, delays. And so tonight, I have Candace Christensen on, who's very passionate about treating all human beings with dignity and respect. And I have to say, as a CSAT and an APSAT, I do too. She actually is on the spectrum herself of autism. And as an autistic woman, a child sexual abuse survivor, a licensed clinician, and an intimacy and trauma expert, she has dedicated the last 20 years to working with individuals with attachment-based disorders stemming from overt and covert developmental trauma. I can't wait to ask her about that, how she sees it playing out overt and covert. Um, She's part of the Global Prevention Project. Her programs, Namaste, Center for Healing, and the Global Prevention Project are internationally known for treating cisgender, transgender, non-binary individuals, as well as those on the autistic uh, spectrum. You know, when you're on the autism spectrum, you have a variety of intimacy issues and may even have complex trauma. So Candace is going to help us understand some of the things that uh, people on the autism spectrum face, and she's going to talk about her workbook, Mastering the Trauma World, a Mindful Approach to Healing Trauma and Creating Healthier Relationships. She wrote that workbook because she felt like people needed to know how they could improve their sense of mental health, their sense of self, and develop more intimacy in their world. She and her husband, Chris, will be launching the Autism and Intimacy podcast later this year. Okay, so we've got another podcast coming. That will be so interesting. And when I contacted her to have her come on the show, she was in Maui. And she says, her bio says, I enjoy traveling to Maui multiple times a year and snorkeling, hiking, and playing on the beach. A woman after my own heart, you all know that that's what I love to do. Not so much snorkeling. I mean, I do snorkel. But I love paddle boating, and I love skiing, and I love walking that beach. And that is how I find my serene. You know, I work hard, play hard, and so serenity is so important. And so I want to encourage all of you, when you're looking at intentional self-care, you want to find things that relax the mind and that give you time to meditate, contemplate, and become very much in connection with your higher power. You know, I was talking with a man uh, in group several weeks ago, and he kept slipping. And, you know, he's worked really hard on his sexual addiction, but he just 
isn't able to gain more than a couple of weeks without slipping, whether that's looking at bathing suit images or provocative, controversial stories. Um, It's not like he goes to hard pornography, but you and I both know when you're lighting up that reward center, whether it be a woman in a bikini or a full-fledged nude picture of a female or male, depending on what your bias is, um, it lights up the reward center in the same way. And the brain doesn't know the difference. And so it's dangerous territory. And no one can expect to get 100% healthy until they stop what they consider to be slippery slope behavior. And since we allow all sex addicts to customize their uh, approach, um, I have just really encouraged him to put that in his inner circle so that he'll take it as seriously as I see it is for him. Now, the truth of the matter was that in group, each person was able to share with him one thing that they felt was missing from his program. They weren't doing his inventory. They weren't being judgmental. They were really saying, hey, have you thought about this? I didn't hear you say that you had this. I'm not sure that you're looking at this. And then he could take what he wanted and leave the rest. So that's exactly what he did. He heard things like, dude, you're trying to do this on your own. Yeah, you got group, but you're not calling any of us when you feel the urge. You know, fellowship is where it's at. You've got to contact us. That was one suggestion. He also heard, man, I I don't know. I think you've got to work more on step one, two, and three. It seems like your higher power is really missing from this equation. And when you put the higher power in the equation, you're much more likely to be successful. Have you talked to your sponsor about that? That was advice number two. Another person I thought was really interesting said, hey, I know that your wife is doing the absolute best she can, but has she thought about being a little bit firmer about the consequences? I mean, it seems like she gets upset and screams and cries and rants and raves, and, but she doesn't set limits with you. And I don't think you're going to change until you experience her hardcore limits. So that was advice number three. Advice number four was about structuring his day and taking um, an approach whereby he uh, put a keystroker on his computer that, you know, sent the message that he was keying in images um, immediately to his wife or to his sponsor. So that was kind of an IT technical thing. And, you know, we all know that anybody can get around anything when it comes to technology. But a CSAT really believes that anything that slows down a poor choice is going to be more effective. 
So those were some of the things that this man was given as potential tools that he might use um, in really working on the slips. Because when it comes down to deal-breaking behaviors, he stayed out of his inner circle um, for three or four years, and he's been struggling with this actively for 10. And at the same time, there's a part of his brain that justifies, rationalizes, and minimizes looking at images, clickbait, that kind of thing. And as long as he allows himself the window, if you will, to do that, then the, the more difficult the problem and the more likely he is not to have complete success. And this man deserves complete success. I'm telling you, Tom deserves it. So I'm going to ask you, if you're an addict, what is one thing that has been tugging at your heartstrings that you have known could clean up your recovery, your structure, your program? What's one thing that you absolutely have thought about and discarded. It's tugged at your heartstrings and you've pushed it away. Perhaps your sponsors recommended it and you've ignored it. Maybe your wife or girlfriend or husband has said, get with the program and you have minimized their request. And if you would, I'd like for you to write that thing down. And I would like for you to write out a statement that says, as of tomorrow at 9 a.m., I am willing to buy that keystroke um, terminator or by the end of the week, I promise that uh, as of Saturday morning, I am going to tell my wife that two polygraph tests a year would help me to stay clean. Or, I have wanted to do this thing without medication, but I really do think that naltrexone might be a helpful medication to stop my urges and cravings. And I commit to calling the addiction specialist that my buddy recommended in the program. And even though it's going to take me two months to get in, I will make that commitment to, you got it, get evaluated and see if the medicine is right for me. One thing is when you write something down, you make it happen. Two, if you can come up with a date, place it in places that you can see it you're much more likely to create an action plan to help. That's a little bit SAA or SA, and that's a little bit of um, a cognitive behavioral approach, smart recovery, if you will, recovery nation. Uh, those two groups use a very cognitive behavioral approach, and it can be very, very helpful, especially if you're dealing with not really, not really sure if, if 
you do have a higher power, if there is such a thing as a higher power. So that's your homework assignment for this week. And I want you to send me an email at carol at carolthecoach.com, and please let me know um, how that's working for you. Now, again, tonight, we're going to be talking about treating adults on the autism spectrum who have intimacy disorders. And, you know, as I indicated earlier, Candace Christensen is a CSAT. She's a licensed clinician, and she's an expert in assessing and treating adults on the autism spectrum, as well as being an autistic Asperger's female. Candace has worked with hundreds of individuals on the autism spectrum over the past 20 years. She has a passion for it. She's created projects for it. She's developed a workbook for it. And she is an amazing individual who I heard respond on my listserv. And I said, I have got to have her on the show because she really, she brings to light something that we really are not quite sure about. But what we do know, and, and I especially learned this when I ran a teen group for young males who had um, problematic sexual behavior. I didn't want to call them a sex addict. I would not have labeled them that way. But when I got all six of them together, four, probably four and a half, that's a joke, but not really, were on the autism spectrum. And so what I do know is that because of their own isolation, because of their own inability to have intimacy, and I'm not talking sexual intimacy, I mean closeness with other people, because they were incredibly bright and because they immersed themselves in gaming and computers, they were susceptible to problematic sexual behavior. And the most incredible thing happened with this group is that they formed some lasting bonding relationships. And, you know, when I first started with the group, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got my hands full. But what I realized is they were craving real forms of communication, attachment, and intimacy. So, Christian, Candace, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about autism. We don't know enough about it. You are so welcome. I hope you can hear me okay. Can you hear me okay? I sure can. How about you with me? Oh, good. I can hear you great. That's great. Yes. Well, you've just been so honest in your writings and your podcasts, and I know you're going to be doing podcast this year on autism. Tell me a little bit about how you got so involved with this specialized disorder. Well, it's so interesting because I, you know, I wasn't diagnosed until I was in my 40s. And so um, I'm 45 now. And but interestingly enough, throughout the years, I tended to attract other adults on the autism spectrum, whether they were male or female. And when I was in my undergraduate program, I actually volunteered for a year with children who were on the spectrum. Again, you know, not knowing um, that I too was on the spectrum. And so I always knew that I was different. Um, I always knew that I had some quirks, if you will, 
I always knew that socially I was, you know, awkward and so on and so forth. Um, but I didn't realize until my mid forties, I was on the spectrum. And so as folks started coming to me, adults, um, and working with me, especially after I got my CSAT, I, you know, throughout this process learned we've got to do it differently in terms of treatment with folks on the spectrum. They deserve that um, because triggers, for instance, are going to be different than a non-autistic person. And so, so it's been, it, it, I would, I'd love to say it was accidental how I became passionate about this, but now that I know, and you know, that I am Asperger's or a woman on the autism spectrum it's really validating and it that actually has really helped in driving my passion. Well, and you can tell that you're very, very passionate about it. Obviously, you have a soft place in your heart for the struggles that so many people experience when they have problematic sexual behavior and autism. You get that attachment issue. Can you tell me a little bit and our listening audience how you see autism and that spectrum and how it applies to attachment issues and theories or lack thereof. Well, if you, I mean, if one of the, there's the primary thing in terms of someone on the autism spectrum, and I'll speak about me, for instance, is, you know, we do have communication and social deficits. And so, um, growing up, there's subtle, you know, social nuances going on around us, and we're not catching on to those, like our non-spectrum peers. And so, you know, there definitely can be, if we're talking about attachment theory with parents, you know, an autistic child can, and a parent can attach to an autistic child. However, you know, for instance, if we have a lot of sensory sensitivities, so for instance, um, I'm not a hugger. That's very uncomfortable for me. I always thought something was wrong with me when other family members would hug and I would get tactile defensive. You know, I didn't want to be touched. And so this is really normal for a lot of folks on the spectrum. Do I want to connect? Yes, I do want to connect. Um, as an adult, I logically can understand that and say that. But, you know, if I imagine being a kid, it's like, I don't, this was uncomfortable and awkward for me to connect to you or attach to you in that way. And so um, I think there's also this misunderstanding or misconception that folks on the spectrum don't want to be intimate or they don't want to have an intimate connection with other people. They don't want to be um, sexually intimate or in relationship. And we do. It's just for a lot of us, we don't know how. Again, it's very scary there's a lot of social intricacies we miss that we didn't learn in our childhood that our uh, you know, non-spectrum peers did. And so, so, yeah, that can be really problematic. And then we can add on, you know, the component of folks that turn to pornography, for instance, to cope, folks that are on the spectrum. What I find is there's a lot going on. So, you know, if I have sensory overload, so I'm just going to say if I, but it's not me because I don't have a pornography addiction, but let's say I have a pornography mm -hmm. addiction, I'm autistic, and I have, I went to Costco and it was really loud and I was, super, I, you know, just, that was really anxiety provoking. The lights were really bright. 
And then I get in the car and the kids have music playing really, really loud and there's stuff going on. And then, you know, people are driving crazy. And so my, I am completely, I get home and I'm completely on sensory overload. So a lot of the clients I work with on the spectrum, they'll turn to pornography and then masturbate as a way to self-soothe, as a way to self-stim, if you will. Self-stimulatory behavior is, you know, behavior that we, objects, we might use an object, I'll play with my hair a lot as a way to self-stim, or it's a way to soothe that anxiety or sensory overload. So it's really, really fascinating when we talk about you know, folks on the spectrum and attachment issues, for instance, and it's especially interesting when we add on the component of moving into an intimacy issue or disorder or even pornography addiction or sex addiction. But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it really, really does. So, you know, you already gave us a tip because I know one of the, the questions that I have is for parents that are our listening audience, you know, for those family members or even the clinicians listening to the show, do you think that adults on the autism spectrum present differently than children or teens on the spectrum? Or are they all the same? Well, I love that you asked that because we, as an adult, I definitely present differently than a child who's on the spectrum or a teen. And a big part of that for me and the folks that I see that end up diagnosed is I've had a lot of years to socially camouflage um, or mask my traits and model after someone that's on spectrum or follow and mimic people that I admire and try to be like. So a lot of people will say, I'm shocked. I would never have guessed you were Asperger's or on the autism spectrum. Well, I'm 45 years old. <clears throat> so I've had a lot of years behind me to mimic and model and mask a lot of the traits. But my husband, <laughs> when we do our, we're going to do a podcast called the Autism and Intimacy Podcast where my husband and I are literally talking about our relationship. He has a whole other side of me because he gets to see you know, when I get, like I said, tactile defensive, or I can be, I can come across as very rude sometimes, and it's not my intention, but that's a spectrum trait where it's like, matter of fact, I might say something that's insulting, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just, but for children, you know, going back to children and teens, you know, a lot of children, um, and I think a lot of professionals know, that are experts in assessing children and teens on the spectrum know what to look for. You know, you have the nonverbal child after a certain age. They have, you know, restricted interest. You know, their behaviors are socially awkward. They isolate. They're alone. So on, they're, you know, loners, so on and so forth. Specialized interest. They throw temper tantrums that are really ex extensive. But as, again, as an adult, what I love about us now saying autism spectrum we really are. It really is a spectrum. Each and every person I meet on the spectrum expresses their symptoms a little bit differently. And I think it's really beautiful. I think we have a lot of beautiful strengths as being spectrum folks that often gets forgotten in our quote diagnosis. And so I really try to work with a lot of adults on the spectrum and realizing and recognizing that even though you have deficits and challenges, you also have some really beautiful strengths. But, yeah, they're very Absolutely. different. It, it, you almost, and you know what, Carol, you almost have to fight for a diagnosis as an adult 
there you really uh, uh-huh. there's a lot of folks I know that feel like they have to quote prove to the professional that they're on the spectrum. They'll read a book or several books, they'll research and study on their own. It's very validating to know, my gosh, I am on the spectrum. I've had this my whole life, you know, go on and on and on. But then they get in front of a professional and there's this fear of being told, no, you're not, which I've I've witnessed that before. Because again, if you and I, if you and I got together, Carol, I would look you in the eye. I know how to make eye contact. I know how to be very articulate and so on and so forth. But it doesn't mean I, I'm not crawling out of my skin because giving eye contact for me as a woman on the spectrum is very uncomfortable. Whereas for you, it's probably pretty natural. Does that make sense? But I've learned yeah. to I've learned to do that because that's the norm in our culture, even though I'm completely uncomfortable. So if I were if I'm in front of a psychiatrist, psychologist and I'm presenting very well. I'm highly successful. Sadly, oftentimes professionals will say, wow, you know, you're so successful that, you you know, or you give eye contact, you're married. There's these assumptions that, you know, you're obviously not on the spectrum, but I, I so it is harder. It's harder to get a diagnosis in adulthood. I will say that there's, you have to get collateral information, clinical observation, a lot of assessing and testing by someone at the end of the day it ends up being the clinical judgment of the professional who has expertise. That makes total sense for our listening audience that may tuned in late. I'm speaking with Candace Christensen. Um, her websites are namasteadvice.com and theglobalpreventionproject.org. And she is an expert at working with people on the autism spectrum and helping them function and cope in a world that is not necessarily structured for them. She especially is gifted with working with people that have problematic sexual behaviors because of all the issues of self-stimulation to calm the body down and the isolation and intimacy disorders that sometimes people with autism face. So I'm going to ask you, there is this misconception that people who are autistic or who are on the autism spectrum are often asexual and they don't want a relationship. And yet I told you when I worked with my teenage boys, they were craving the relationship. So give me your two cents on that. What do you think? Do, do you find that they don't want relationships? Is that the truth? So every adult I work with has said they want a relationship, you know, and um, but but so many of us don't know how to be in a relationship. Again, because we have the, you know, social awkwardness, we don't necessarily understand the social cues going on. When do I talk? You know, is this when I talk? Or maybe they talk too much because their communication deficit of, you know, not understanding reciprocity. And so, you know, when do I, when, how do I, make it so I go on a date, you know, what, what exactly do I do? And, and when is, when do we have sex and so on and so forth. And so, you know, that there is absolutely a misconception that, that folks in the spectrum are asexual and, um, and it's not black and white. Many, many folks on the spectrum want to be in relationship and, and many want to be able to explore whatever their kind of relationship they want. There's folks on the spectrum who are, 
monogamous and married. There's folks who are single. There's folks on the spectrum who are polyamorous. There are folks who are into all kinds of fetishes and BDSM and so on and so forth. And, you know, so, um, yeah, it doesn't look a certain way. I think uh, there's a a really lovely book uh, called Spectrum Women that is was written it's written by barb cook and michelle dr michelle garnett barb cook is a also on the spectrum and you know this is for women obviously but i love one of the excerpts where she talks about that 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 you know spectrum folks want to be in a relationship and how our relationships look are unique and um some might be traditional and some might be not so traditional and that's okay there's not one right way, but we too want to have intimacy in a relationship. We just need some guidance, specific guidance and support how to do that. Got it. And so then, no, they may have some difficulties with being asexual, but that's really because they have difficulties with having relationships. And if somebody shows them how to do that, and they're much more likely to have success in that area. Correct. There, I have yet to work, and maybe because I work with folks who are on the side of, you know, porn addiction, sex addiction, um, where they're they're not asexual per se. They are sexual compulsivity more so. Um, so, but there may sure there might be folks that are are asexual. I think more often than not, that's fear related, which is, you know, I have a lot of compassion. If you're listening and you're asexual and you're on the spectrum, okay, that's okay too. You know, if if you're not wanting to be sexual, I do work with folks on the spectrum that have sexual anorexia too, where it's like I, there's this fear of being sexual. And a big part of that, when they get, I've gotten down to it has to be based on history or they jumped the gun thinking they knew, oh, they, you know, read on the website that, you know, after on somebody's website, hey, after three times you have sex and then it went, you know, sideways and it was absolutely horrific. And so then it's like, okay, well, never mind. You know, I don't want to have sex. But um, a lot of folks on the spectrum do want to have sexual intimacy and do want to have connection. But again, there's so many intricate rules, Carol, that no one talks about. But for someone on the spectrum, it can be really scary and intimidating to know the rules around sex, right? And the rules around intimacy and is intimacy sex and, you know, attaching and connecting and, um, yeah. So, so we do, I do a lot of really slowing it down, breaking it down for people. Um, you know, we, we get to where it's like, if we need to do sex, sex, education 101 you know let's talk about that even consent let's talk about what that is because i think sometimes there can be confusion for folks on the spectrum too oh absolutely 100 percent. you know as you were speaking i was thinking about people that aren't on the spectrum i mean dating and sex and relationships are all hard to navigate and it's gotten even more complex and complicated as we become more technological. So I can appreciate that if you don't have those skills to begin with, you're not alone. I believe the majority of people don't. It's just that if you would, Candace, explain what 
autism is from a bio-neuropsychological perspective. So we're looking at a neurodevelopmental disorder when we talk about neuro, when we're talking about autism. So this is a persistent lifelong impairment in social communication. There's restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, and activities. Um, you know, folks on the spectrum can get really locked into ideas and ways of being. There might there are often really really specialized interests. Um, uh, real need for routines, challenges with nonverbal communication and understanding communication, challenges in relationships. Um, so this is, and it's pervasive. So it's pervasive over time. You know, when we, if I'm interviewing an adult on the spectrum, doing a clinical interview, like I'm evaluating for an evaluation, for instance, I actually, if their parents are still alive, I will have their parents give me a developmental history so I, we can look at, you know, this is a lifelong thing. It's, you know, a lot of people might say, well, I'm socially awkward. Am I on the spectrum? It's so much more than that. I mean, this is, again, this persistent um, difficulty interacting with peers or indifference to having contact with peers, being able to be alone, missing social and sexual cues, um, Theory of mind deficits, executive functioning deficits, where, you know, uh, metacognition, we're not aware of how we're performing, or we have response inhibition where we don't, we come across as like we don't have tact at times, where it's not my intention to come across as rude, but sometimes I'll just say something. We can be honest to a fault because we don't really have the, a filter. Um, and then also there can be some processing issues where, it might take a minute, you know, um, I liken a lot of folks on the spectrum to be very visual and the way that we see the world, we're very visual and colorful in the way we view and perceive what's around us. And so um, for me, for instance, my visual is a collage, it's a collage, you put things in my collage, kind of like a, you know, if you had a vision board and every morning I imagine what's going on my collage for my day. And so if my staff, who knows I'm on a spectrum, wants to add to my collage and I am not prepared for that, you know, I could either have a meltdown or a shutdown. And I worked really, really hard to be able to manage that. But I know that there are people on, that are listening tonight, Carol, that can understand what I'm saying. There's a lot going on. You know, we process things differently. We think and see the world very, very differently. And again, these can be strengths but they also can create challenges for us. There's also self-stimming behavior, which is a form of regulating our emotion when we find ourselves anxious. Sometimes if we find ourselves tired, self-stimming behavior might look like, um, like I said, playing with hair or fidgeting with a coaster. I have someone in my group who will fidget with a coaster, playing with pens, um, you know, some, some masturbate as a form of soothing or regulating their anxiety. Um, and then eye contact, you know, that's one that's really nonverbal. And if we want to talk about intimacy, if you think about it, when we're talking about intimacy, oftentimes we face the person, we're looking in their eyes before we kiss them, making love. It's like, open your eyes. Can you imagine how hard that is for someone on the spectrum? who is crawling out of their skin with giving eye contact. <laughs> so 
mean, there's definitely a lot more. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot more going on. Uh, when people say, well, I'm socially awkward am I on the spectrum, Kate, it's so much more than that. So I hope I gave kind of a good overview of what, you know, what is involved in the diagnosis for someone on the spectrum. Well, you absolutely did. And, and so now, just because people may be hearing this for the first time and they may even be thinking, oh, my gosh, that's me, or oh, my gosh, that's my wife, or, oh, my gosh, that's my child. So I'd like for you, if you could, to talk a little bit more about the specific things that you address when you're working with an autistic individual or couple around intimacy issues when one or both of them have autism. Well, I think a big thing is, uh, because intimacy is so much more than sex, is communication. Because a lot of folks on the spectrum, we have, well, one of the primary traits of someone on the spectrum is a theory of mind deficit, for instance. So struggling to um, understand your perspective of things, for instance. So you know, in my work with couples who, where there's one, um, typically I've only worked with where it's one person on the spectrum, but sometimes I've suspected it's both. Um, I'll work with the, the person who is autistic on understanding, you know, the other, their partner's perspective. So that's really, really important. Another thing too is cognitive empathy. You know, cognitive empathy, I think there's this misconception that folks on the spectrum, we don't experience empathy or we have low levels of empathy, but that's actually not true. You know, I'm very emotional. A lot of females on the spectrum I know are very, very emotional and feel very, very deeply. It's just sometimes we don't know how and when to show that. That's cognitive empathy. So it's learning how to actually demonstrate that you have the empathy for the person. That would be something that I'm work, I'd be working with with a couple uh, that I'm seeing. Um, really raising the awareness that uh, the non-spectrum partner has needs as well, because I think a lot of times um, because of what's going on with a person on the spectrum and everybody brings their own stuff to the relationship, but I think a lot of times the person on the spectrum, and I can speak for myself in this, can get caught up in, in my own specialized interest in things. And for me, it tends to be work where my husband will feel neglected and he has needs too. And so we'll work on that when I work with couples too on, hey, you know, let's make sure that you are learning to balance work with play. Play is very, can be very, very hard for those of us on the spectrum. We can get very rigid and locked in. That's an executive function challenge that we have where you know, get locked into something and then we just don't want to stop. We definitely want to work on that rather than pay the bills or whatever because that can be boring. And so really finding balance in life between honing in and like, having that hyper focus on things and perseverating on things and really learning to balance that, especially with our partner with play or even finding time to put the, our screens down and, and focus on our partner, which can be very, very, very challenging. So communication is huge. I will say this, Carol, I'm a Gottman leader. I got trained to do Gottman um, 
classes, so did my husband. I love the Gottman stuff. And for those that are clinicians listening or or folks that are on the spectrum listening, the thing I love about Gottman stuff is it's very structured, it's concrete, and it has a system. And for those of us that are on the spectrum, we love those things. So I use a lot of the Gottman stuff with clients, couples. Um, I use that in our group just to learn, like, okay, let's walk through, you know, the four horsemen, what can be create roadblocks to communication because it's so simple and concrete. So those are just a few examples um, of things we work on with, that I work on with folks who are, have a spectrum on spectrum relationship. And then if there's, I will say this, if there's an addiction or infidelity issue, it's a whole other ball game. I mean, we're going to talk about what I talked about, but we definitely dive into the betrayal, the betrayed spouse and her, and his or her trauma we definitely will dive in. I love Patrick Kern's work. I'm a huge fan of the task-based approach, especially with folks on the spectrum because it's CBT-based. Folks with um, that are on the spectrum do very well with CBT, um, and so it's awesome because it just spells it out. Some of uh, in his workbook, Kern's workbook, you know, there are visuals, and so folks on the spectrum a lot of times will have their own way of envisioning things, whether it's a cycle or so on and so forth, so I'll let them draw how that looks, but we do a lot of work around that, um, and, you know, couples work with that. We go, we take our time until the folks, the person on the spectrum that's got the addiction is ready and say with partner, so I know that was a mouthful, but <laughs> that's, that's what, that's, a, that's what we do, that's what I do. Well, and I would think that it's so important for you to be able to utilize that CSAT. Um, Candace is a CSAT. She's a certified sexual addictions therapist. She's trained with Dr. Carnes. And so she understands the differences and the nuances between having some intimacy disorders and having sexual addiction, which has a secondary issue of intimacy disorder. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. you being able to obviously differentiate that for your clients and also for our listeners. Now, I got to ask you, I know that you started this um, The Global Prevention Project. Tell us a little bit about what that is because you you have been an advocate for any kind of person. Anybody dealing mm-hmm. with any different? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you are so kind, Carol, to bring that up. You know, I, um, yeah, I have. I am open to treating anyone um, who is asking for help. And so we do actually have a program both at my uh, Namaste Center for Healing. For Healing, that was the Namaste Advice Com website you mentioned where we treat folks on the spectrum as well as neurotypical individuals with all kinds of trauma and intimacy issues. But um, people, when I started out, came to me, um, men who said, hey, I, you know, I, I think I have an addiction to porn, but I think it's escalated and I'm scared. You know, it's, um, it's escalated into viewing child pornography and I don't want to hurt anyone. I really want to stop. I'm scared that I'm addicted. Can you help me? And I said, yes, you know, I absolutely want to help, excuse me, individuals who are coming to me and wanting to change um, a maladaptive behavior and that, you know, especially. And so 
what was interesting about that is I started having men coming to me saying, I not only have, have struggled with viewing pornography and moved into child pornography, but I'm attracted to children and I've never had a contact sex crime. I've never touched a child sexually. I don't want to hurt a child, but I need help. And so now it's been several years now. We treat minor attracted persons um, all over the world. The only reason I use that term, it's not something that I created, is because it's an umbrella term for individuals who are attracted to babies, uh, prepubescent children, pubescent teens, and postpubescent teens. So we call it MAPS. Um, so I don't have to break down all the, the terms. We've done that. We treat cisgender, uh, transgender, non-binary uh, MAPS, and we have web-based groups for MAPS uh, with individuals who call over from all over the world. We also treat partners of sex offenders. We have two groups, two call-in groups. Um, the Global Prevention Project is web-based. All the groups are web-based, so you can call in from all over the world. We treat individuals on the autism spectrum, those who are mentally ill, those who have Parkinson's who are legally involved with a sex crime. And we treat individuals who um, have escalated addiction. So like I said, individuals who've looked at pornography, for instance, and then it's escalated into really risky, risky sexual behavior, uh, such as viewing child pornography. So. That is a passion of mine, Carol, because I am all about prevention as the intervention. I want to make sure as a sexual, child sexual abuse survivor myself that no, uh, no child is ever harmed. I want to treat these people that are coming to me who need help um, to ensure that our communities are safe. And for those individuals that are committed to making sure our children are safe in the community, I am absolutely, absolutely committed to to offering them support and treatment and advocacy. So yeah, that's the Global Prevention Project. And, and again, what got you interested in that? How did you get started? So how did I get started? I, you know, I, again, I had people coming to my door when I was in private practice saying, help me. And I, especially with individuals that said I'm attracted to children, but I've never harmed anyone. I had never, I didn't even know those people existed. And so I, you know, was like, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm open to helping you. You are wanting me to help you. Um, they've come to me and say I've got an addiction. I'm addicted to pornography, but I'm also attracted to a child or a teenager. So on. I have never hurt anyone. I don't want to hurt anyone. And so that is actually how I got into it. I reached out to our sex offender task force. I reached out to Department of Corrections to ask, you know, are there any programs? And what I got was, um, no, you have to wait until a crime is committed. You have to wait until they've harmed a child to do anything. And I absolutely said, no, I'm not going to, no, these people are, they're not sex offenders. They you know, have not harmed anyone. They're asking me to help them with their pornography addiction and they want to learn how to manage their attraction to be safe in society. Why would I not help them? And so, um, Carol, I received death threats. Last year I received death threats. Um, you know, I was attacked by trolls 
um, people that did not understand what we were doing. Um, we had two uh, articles come out that were libelous about us, um, talking about, you know, that we are, uh, we were pro- claiming that we were, I was promoting um, making pedophile a part of the LGBTQ movement, which was completely false. And I, it nearly brought me to my knees, but I decided, you know, um, no one knows who I am. I had a uh, Brazilian journalist reach out and say, I'm trying to advocate for you. I, lo- I looked on your website. You're doing good things to, to prevent child sexual abuse. How can I advocate for you if I don't know who you are? And so, Carol, I planted my flag, and I it's on the home page. Um, if people want to read it, I responded to him, and I put, we posted on the front page and I said this is who I am I'm a I'm not a pedophile I'm a child sexual abuse survivor and I'm a clinician I um, am passionate about child sexual abuse prevention and I have people coming to me from all over the world that want help who are attracted to children who don't want to hurt anyone I'm going to help them and no one's going to stop me and so accidentally I guess is the answer I just went the long form um, but that's how I got into it. And I, I, um, I'm really, really passionate about it. Well, I can tell. And so it's kind of a build it and they will come. You wanted to find out more information about it, found out there wasn't any programs or services. Anything. Right. Kind of created it. And again, because of your own, um, expertise, your own history, uh, you have been an advocate for this kind of programming. And I really appreciate the fact that you're changing the community like that. So now we have Thank to, you. we're actually wrapping it up. And I just want to ask you, um, if someone is listening to the show and they're wondering if they have autism, what is something that they can do right now? And do you know of any free resources for, for individuals on the autism spectrum? Well, okay, so I there's a few books that I love. Cynthia Kim is an autistic female, and she's written a few books. Um, the two favorites, so if, if um, I think I might be autistic, that's by Cynthia Kim. You can get that on Amazon. It's got crayons or colored pencils on the front. It's a small book. That is an excellent book if you're an adult listening and you're wondering. The other book that she wrote that's her story, but she has all kinds of tips and tools, is called Nerdy, Shy, and Socially Inappropriate. It's phenomenal. Females tend to present differently than males, so Spectrum Women, if you're a woman listening, is phenomenal. I could highly, highly recommend And then if you're a married couple or in relationship, a partnership, and you want um, to learn about, you know, how do we have a successful relationship, spectrum, non-spectrum, so on and so forth, or both spectrum, marriage and lasting relationships by Eva Mendez. It's phenomenal. So free resources on my website, Namaste Advice. If you go to that, click on resources, there's white papers. You'll click on it, and there's free, free handouts that you can download for adults on the spectrum. And I'm continuing to add more of those um, each and every month when I have some free time. And so um, you can also email me, Candace at namasteadvice.com, if 
I went too fast um, and you want me to repeat the books or you want to know how to get to my website. So there's a lot out there, but those are, um, if you're wondering, I highly recommend Cynthia Kim's book. I think I might be autistic as a start. It's a quick read. It's incredibly validating. That's a really good place to start. Well, Candace Christensen, thank you so much. I want to reiterate that her website is Namaste, which is N-A-M-A-S-T-E-A-T-E, and then it's advice, namasteadvice.com. And you can always look her up through the globalpreventionproject.org. So keep us posted. We want to know the new and interesting things you are doing. And thank you for advocating for the autism disorder because I'm telling you that spectrum is, as you indicated earlier, it can be so mild that you think something's off or a bit peculiar, but you can't put your finger on it. Or it can result, obviously, in some fairly severe um, relationship issues. So I so appreciate all the work you're doing, and thanks again. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on the, on the call tonight. Thank you so much, Carol. All right. Make it a good one. And again, that was Candace Christensen, and she is amazing. She's taken her own life and made a difference in the lives of others. And that's what I want you all to do because you know whether you're into that 12-step program or not, what it can do for others is amazing. That is the 12th step. And so I want you to ask yourself, not only what's been tugging at your heart, as I mentioned earlier, that you need to change to fine-tune your program to get more out of recovery, but I also want to ask you, what can you do to give back? Because we are all lights in this world and we need to shine and no matter what you've been through no matter what you've been convicted of no matter how many affairs you've had no matter what has happened to you in your life you've got a lot of love you've got a lot of gifts and you've got a lot of light to shine so as i say at the end every program you know i want you to fearlessly have the courage to be yourself And I'll see you next week for more sex help here over coach. Make it a good one. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.